episode 81. Well, if you've been living under a rock, you may have not have heard that we might be going to war with Iran, hopefully not. But I'm joined by my good friends, Kyle Anslin and Will Porter. You guys know Kyle. He hosts Foreign Policy Focus. It's an awesome podcast on, for, on foreign policy. You can find it at foreignpolicyfocus.libsyn.com. You can also find him at thelibertarianinstitute.org. And I'm also joined by my good friend, Will Porter. Um, haven't talked to Will in a while, but he actually just got a job at Russia today. So that's awesome. Um, I wanted him to tell us more about that. But what's up, guys? What's up, Kyle and Will? Hey, what's up, Stephen? Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Always look forward to doing these interviews. Uh, they're always a lot of fun and hopefully informative. Yeah, so I mean, timing couldn't be better because obviously what happened yesterday. So apparently um, Iran shot down a U.S. drone and now they're saying that, <clears throat> well, now Trump is saying that he staved off the attack of 150 people and he saved the lives of 150 people because he stopped the attack. So I don't even know where we should start the episode. I mean, I think we were originally going to do a little bit of prehistory, but Talking to Kyle, it sounded like it's going to be a three-hour episode if we do that. So wherever you guys want to start, let's just do it. Um, I guess people want to know, are we going to war with Iran? So, yeah, I thought maybe a, a quick place to just start here was the last time the U.S. and Iranian relations at least had a chance to reset, and that was in 2015 uh, with Obama making the uh, Iranian nuclear deal or the JCPOA. Um, when this was signed, basically what it did is was supposed to normalize economic relations between the U.S. and Iran. And even under Obama, the U.S. really didn't live up to those commitments. Uh, but anyways, they did start to lift some sanctions. And European companies lifted those sanctions and I think largely lived up to kind of the commitments in the JCPOA of encouraging uh, trade with Iran and everything like that. It also put in a guarantee that the United States, Israel, and everybody else in the world would have a guaranteed year's notice if Iran ever looked to start making a nuclear weapon. Um, they put limits on the amount of nuclear material Iran could stockpile. Iran destroyed and is now converting uh, their reactor that produced uh, the nuclear material that would be easiest to refine for a bomb. Uh, they destroyed and got rid of a bunch of their nuclear centrifuges which is used to, uh, you know, enrich uranium. Uh, they agreed to a cap on enriched uranium at 3.6%, which is only fuel grade, which is under medical grade. And, the, and that's the 20% cap that's allowed in the non-proliferation treaty, which is, you know, the treaty that, let's say, any kind of normal country without nuclear weapons, Italy, Poland, um, you know, Thailand, those are the regulations that those countries would have to go by. So that's kind of the normal standard to be in the MPT. In that case, the UN nuclear watchdog group, the IAEA, could come in and inspect your nuclear facilities to make sure uh, from time to time that you know everything was kind of on the up and up and that you weren't secretly making a nuclear bomb. Uh, the IAEA, uh, with the uh, Iran nuclear deal, installed a whole bunch of cameras and uh, monitors on every... Iranian nuclear facility to absolutely make sure there's no nefarious things going on anywhere in Iran that has to do with making nuclear weapons. Uh, you could guarantee under the Iran nuclear deal that I, I, what they're doing with their nuclear program was just civilian. Now, there's a couple things that Donald Trump and Republicans often complain about with the Iranian nuclear deal, which was, you know, Donald Trump saying the cash. That was actually money that international courts had ordered America to give back to Iran because 
you know, briefly here, the 79 revolution happened and Iran went from being an uh, ally to an enemy state and they had planned to buy a whole bunch of weapons. And so there's a whole bunch of Iranian money held by the U.S. But then we didn't deliver the weapons because after 79, uh, we saw them as the enemy, which I mean, made sense. But then you have to get the money back at some point. And so actually what Obama did is he used that as leverage and a whole bunch of American uh, who are held in Iranian prisons for one reason or another end up getting released. So, uh, you know, he actually leverages money that he was ordered to give back to Iran to, you know, get Iran to make more concessions. Had Donald Trump did that, he would be celebrating that as a great deal. I, I think he would call this the, the greatest deal in history. Um, the other complaint is that there are some sunsets in the deal. But that does nothing other than start to limit some of the additional sanctions, or not sanctions, inspections and protocols on Iran's nuclear program, allowing them to enrich uranium up to medical grade. That way they can make medicines. I mean, we're looking at a situation in Iran right now where the U.S. left the Iran nuclear deal in May of 2018. And start to put sanctions back in place so now iran is limited in the amount of like medications they can make and uh they're limited by the iran nuclear deal which they're still a part of with the european countries and the rest of the world uh from you know enriching uh the the uranium or to make medicine so i don't know will i'll let you pick it up here yeah i want to bring will in here because um oh this is, this is a crazy situation you know from from the outside looking in I don't know much about Iran. I don't know why we're in this beef with Iran, but I do. I, I look at like a map of where all the U.S. bases are, and I notice that there don't seem to be any in Iran. Why is the situation like that? I mean, without going in, without going too deep here, you know, will um, why is why are things like like the way they are right now in the Middle East, especially with Iran? I mean, there's a lot of considerations with Iran. I mean, you have. You have the fact that they are a major oil producer in the region that certainly puts them on. I mean, people who are concerned with geopolitics in the American empire certainly are concerned with any country that can itself sustain in any way and, and can produce, you know, uh, a resource like oil. Uh, you also have Israel, of course, who has for years considered Iran a regional adversary. And uh, since Benjamin Netanyahu actually started, uh, took power in the 1990s initially, uh, I think he was sort of who or I guess Yit or before Netanyahu was Yitzhak Rabin who really took Iran and made Iran uh, the, the big enemy in Israel. But Rabin, he wanted to use Iran as, as a distraction to make nice with the Palestinians, whereas Netanyahu did the opposite and he took Iran and made it a big enemy to as a distraction from the Palestinian issue. So uh, you, you have the Israeli element as well. I think, uh, you know, uh, if you look at our current personnel right now, John Bolton, for example, uh, he regularly meets with officials from Israel and they're constantly passing him information about Iran. So I think they're definitely a big part of this policy, but it goes back for decades and it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to get into. It goes, like you were saying, all the way back to 1953 with Mohammed Mossadegh and the, uh, you know, the overthrow of the Shah or, or the, the reimposition of the Shah, excuse me. And so it's really, it's like Kyle was saying, it would be like a three hour episode to get into all of this. But, um, well, maybe maybe to break it down simply, um, who controls Iran, and what does it have to do with the ayatollahs? Because these are just terms you hear thrown around. I don't even know what they mean. Ayatollahs, you know, who who for the most part controls Iran, and why is there no U.S. bases in Iran? Is is Iran not like Iraq in the sense that we didn't want to go in and set up democracy there? I mean, why is why is Iran so? Um, why why does Iran have no U.S. bases in it? Why is that the case? 
Yeah, well, so in 1979, uh, the there was the Islamic Revolution, and this is when the the Ayatollahs, you know, take they come into power, and this this huge uh, revolution happens, and they kick out the Shah, and the Shah was an American friendly ruler in Iran, and the Ayatollahs are not, and the Ayatollahs are like I said, like religious leaders, they they belong to something uh, a, a sect of Shia Islam called uh, the Twelfth Imam sect of Shia Islam. Um, and there's sort of like a theocratic system in Iran. There's a religious leadership and there's a political leadership. And then also like the military has some say too. the, the IR, the, the Iranian uh, revolutionary guards corps has like, it's a major faction in their society, but they are not a friendly nation to the United States. So they would not allow American bases there. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure people like John Bolton, they would like eventually would eventually like to see American bases in Iran, but yeah, they simply will not allow that. And, well, yeah, I, like, I think one of the points is that when you look in a map and the fact that U.S. has no bases in Iran, it looks a, it looks as if Iran is surrounded. You know what I mean? It looks like we have military bases on all sides of them, and just the 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 idea that Iran's going to be the one that's going to unleash this nuclear war it seems not too plausible. But again, maybe maybe it is more plausible than you think. I don't know. Maybe it's somewhere in between. What do you think, Kyle? Yeah, I mean, Iran's an independent government in the region. That's why there's no U.S. bases inside of it. And that's why other countries in the U.S. have interest. And uh, that's why for weapons makers, it's a reason, you know, to sell weapons. Look, if you look at the globe, if you look at, like, what percentage of weapons sales and defense spending are a part of, like, NATO and uh, U.S. allied countries, it's, I think, over two-thirds at this point. And so there's really no way you could justify selling weapons if you're being honest at all. So you have to take any state that's not directly taking orders and allowing American bases inside of it and turn it into an enemy to help sell weapons. And like Will said, that along with Israel, uh, the issues with Saudi Arabia, the oil interests, it just all builds up and that makes Iran into a, a big enemy. But like I was you know, trying to say in the start there, and I, I guess I kind of lost my train of thought and lost the big point, which was in 2015, Obama signed this deal that really should have just normalized relations between Iran and the rest of the world. Um, and I, I think Donald Trump was against it, not because he really knew or understood anything about it. If you ever hear him talk about it, all he ever could talk about is just the sunsets and the cash. Because if you know he really understood the agreement, he would absolutely love it. In fact, I think if there was a way to kind of just present Trump with the uh, nuclear deal again, he he would go for it without all the pretexts and everything, knowing about you know uh, that he opposed it all that time. Because it, it, I think it really is kind of a, a great deal in that sense, in that it really took all the pretexts for worth. I ran off the table. Um, something really unfortunate unfortunate happened because of the deal and has really kind of sabotaged the deal too and that is at the same time uh, saudi arabia had a new crown prince or deputy crown prince and defense minister mohammed bin Salman, and he picked a fight with the houthis in iran and that war turned brutal ugly and genocidal really quick the u.s only went along with it because uh they want to placate the saudis uh, these are Obama administration official like announcements, not Kyle Anslone's you know analysis. They <laughs> say it was to placate the Saudis uh, because the Saudis were concerned that the U.S. no longer had a reason for war with Iran, with the the nuclear program absolutely locked down, and uh, so they they waged this war. And then they got everybody to call the Houthis, who the Saudi Arabia is waging a war against in Yemen, Iranian proxies. 
And that's, you know, the, the kind of position everybody built up. And since this war has turned into a genocidal humanitarian nightmare, we're already at like three quarters of a million cases of cholera in 2019, over 1,100 dead from that. And we're talking about one kid dying every 12 minutes from a presentable cause in Yemen, Ackland, new data, 90,000 deaths. And since they say, oh, the Houthis are an Iranian proxy, uh, they've basically been able to keep up the demonization of Iran on a completely false lie in a war that nobody really cares about in America. And that's why it's still going on anyways. You know, funny enough, I was actually going to ask you to pull up the live UA map just briefly for Iran because, you know, sadly enough, most people just can't even point out these countries on a map. And that's the most creepy thing about a lot of neoconservatives is, you know, when I was growing up, I was the same way. My dad would say things like, you know, all the stuff with the Middle East, let's just blow them off the map. And, you know, it's like, you know, me as a little kid, I couldn't point to these countries on a map, you know. So I think even Iran, you think after Iraq and Afghanistan, people would be able to point out the stuff on a map. They probably couldn't. So I don't know if you'll be able to, be a pull, be able to uh, pull up a map, Kyle, but, um, you know, I guess one way this ties in is with energy, because obviously nuclear isn't just used to make nuclear weapons, it's used for energy. And I think me and you had talked about that once before, Kyle, that, you know, Iran needs a lot of nuclear for their energy. So how did the nuclear deals or getting out of the nuclear, nuclear deal affect Iran's economy in the sense that, or how did it affect their ability to produce energy and live, essentially? Um, yeah, I, I mean, Will could take this one if he wants. Yeah, I mean, I can I can answer this while you pull up the map or whatever. Um, so yeah, Donald Trump got out of the JCPOA last May, and pretty soon after started reimposing sanctions on Iran, including on like on all kinds of sectors of Iran's economy, like so precious metals trading, um, all kinds of stuff. But most importantly, their oil industry. And oil is a major export for Iran. They sell it to a lot. You know, they sell it to a lot of major powers around the world, China. Um, and so, yeah, the sanctions have put a huge, you know, uh, damper on their ability to produce and sell their oil around the world, um, which has really started to hurt their economy. Uh, since Donald Trump got out of the, the JCPOA, which he, Trump only got, a, got out on the American side, the deal is still in place between Iran and the rest of the, the P5 plus one nations. Um, but since then, the Iranian currency has also collapsed. The rial has lost a lot of its value. And so uh, the sanctions are putting a immense a pressure, immense pressure on Iran's economy, and immense pressure on their oil industry, which is like their most important sector, I would say, in their economy. And so it's a there's a lot of pressure on them, and I think that sort of provides a lot of the context here for the tensions that we're seeing right now. And and didn't Iran recently switch to the euro? Oh, I'm not actually. I'm not sure actually. I, I know that the the EU has been trying to set up this uh, this uh, uh, trade vehicle. Uh, to this inter interstex, I think they call it this thing that that would allow Iran to get around some of the sanctions and continue trading. However, I'm not sure about uh, their their currency status. I, like, I think that was back in April. They switched from the from the dollar to the euro. And, you know, just related to monetary policy in general. That's one of the fears is that you know what happens when the rest of the world doesn't see the dollar as the the world reserve currency. What if they switch to something else? I mean, we're really screwed then because we're in, we're in so much debt to other countries that I, I'm sure you guys understand. So I guess Kyle's going to pull up the map there. And, um, you know, if, if any of you guys have never seen this map before, I think it's a live uamap.com and we'll link no, to it. Actually, I, I thought for this, it would actually be kind of cool to go to the uh, foolserrand.us, which is Scott Hornsfoot's website, where he has all of his really great maps here of like the different ethnic groups of the Middle East, uh, the different religious groups. And so you can kind of see, like, when I'm talking about here in Yemen, 
um, with the Houthis, this uh, darker green area represents the more Shia Zaidi group, and that's the territory they control. They're yeah. fighting a war against the country here. Uh, you can see the map of Iran here is largely the darker Shia group, although there is some lighter green up here, and that is the uh, Iranian Kurds, which uh, I look for autonomy and in the past have attempted separation. Uh, and then once you get along the border with Afghanistan and, and down in this uh, southern region here, you see some other lighter green area. And those are, uh, I believe, Sunnis that, you know, uh, I don't know if they're Arab Sunnis or Persian Sunnis or Afghani and Pakistani Sunnis, but they live out in that region of um, Iran. And uh, some of them are part of a group known as the MEK, which is a separatist, a pretty cultish group in Iran. I mean... Maybe it's unfair to call them just a cult uh, because uh, you know that's that word is really used as smear. Uh, but they they have a lot of weird rules about celibacy and and they're very strict about that kind of stuff. And they have in the past worked with the Israelis to carry out assassinations and attack within Iran. And uh, that is the group that pays Rudy Giuliani as an example forty thousand dollars to come speak at one of their benefits. Uh, that is where. Was it Giuliani? Do you remember, Will, if it was either Giuliani or Bolton who said that the Iranian Revolution would live to see their 40th birthday at that <laughs> rally? Um, so these these are kind of the, the uh, different actors that you have within Iran. And whenever you hear that, you know, something happened uh, within Iran, so like it, it, I don't know, somebody's killed in Iran, it's always good to remember that not everybody in Iran is a Shia that loves the Ayatollah. And in fact, there's a lot of moderates within the Iranian government. Uh, one of the things that's often pointed out by advocates of the nuclear deal was that there were real, like, more moderate factions within Iran, including the President Rouhani and the foreign minister. Is, is his name Zaif, Will? Uh, Javad Zarif. Mohammed Zarif. Javad Zarif. <clears throat> yes. Uh, who who are real moderates who want to open Iran up to the West and I think to just have it become a much more normalized country that gets along with the rest of the world. And I even saw at some time they were starting to loosen up some of the uh, head covering laws, uh, you know, for women in Tehran where police were no longer arresting women who showed some of their hair. And, and while, uh, like, I agree that these are nowhere near as far as steps that should be taken, I mean, they're, they're steps in the right direction. And this is kind of, I think, what we as libertarians advocate when we talk about, uh, you know, having other countries open to the U.S. That way they could learn about freedom and be like, oh, I'd much rather be living uh, in a place like America that, you know, imagining that America isn't some giant, terrible police state where you have cops shooting people and ice raids all over the place. But yeah, in fact, Kyle, um, you, you mentioned something on one of your episodes the other day. I thought it was one of the greatest things I've ever heard. You basically just said, you know, libertarians should be the absolute best in foreign policy, yet you get people like Gary Johnson who say things like, what is Aleppo? I mean, I don't think most people realize, like, how how bad that was. You know, just, like, libertarians are supposed to be the best in foreign policy, and, like, he doesn't even know. I mean, that Aleppo war had been going on a while now. There's no reason Gary Johnson shouldn't have heard about it. And I think Gary Johnson's response to that was, well, you know, if, if you can't find a place on a map, you can't blow them up. So I, I guess he like almost has a point there. But, um, you know, it's just it's really sad that a lot of libertarians, they uh, for more or less just don't care. Um, you know, we, we kind of live our nice little lives over here in the U.S. And 
as long as we don't turn on the news, we don't really have to deal with it. And you know, this this stuff is very very real for people on the ground in these Middle Eastern countries. Yeah, you know. I, I kind of gave uh, Gary Johnson a little bit of the benefit of the doubt there. Maybe he didn't hear it properly, but it was a terrible look for us, though. It looked really bad that like he yeah. just has no clue what's going on. But yeah, I mean, there you do make a good point. There are some libertarians still who are who are not that great on the foreign policy policy issue, including in some major libertarian institutions. I think there was a, <laughs> a major uh, uh, a le- you know leadership of one of those institutions recently tweeting about one of our people, Ron Paul, who... Uh, yeah, no need to name people. names, but everybody knows who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, God, I mean, there's there's so much stuff we could cover here. I don't know if we just want to jump to to the the drone. Yeah, being shot so I guess- Kyle, I was gonna say on that map, could you zoom into like the Strait of Hormuz and stuff? Like, maybe it'd be good to pull that up while we're talking about like the drone attack and stuff. Yeah, because um, I. I kind of tapped out for a while. I just kind of, you know, turned off everything and I haven't been studying everything every single day. But um, I, I did hear about the drone being shot down. I did hear about that other thing with, was it a ship that got hit by um, a torpedo? Or I, I forget exactly what happened. So I'll let you guys discuss that. Yeah, yeah. so... Oh, go ahead, Kyle. I was going to say, I think there's been a few events here that have all kind of had uh, us concerned in really watching this Iran situation um, uh, there's been a couple of just different mortar fire that have hit within the green zone in Baghdad are near U.S. forces in Iraq. And all of those, you know, kind of are built up to be, oh, tensions between U.S. and Iran, and maybe they were the Shia militias. There's been a few Houthi attacks on Saudi civilian targets, including a water desalinization plant and an airport in Saudi Arabia with some more advanced technology than the Scud missiles that they usually fire. Uh, and then there was an attack on four ships in the UAE port. And Will maybe could give some details on that because he covered that at RT. And then there was the two ships that were damaged in the Gulf, the U.S. says by a limpid mine, but the Japanese company says it was by some kind of uh, aerial a, a projectile. And then last, there was the shootdown of the U.S. drone. The only one of these that anybody could actually, with any kind of evidence, say was Iran, was the drone, uh, the drone being shot down, just for the record. But all those things have kind of been blamed on Iran in recent weeks. Yeah, there's so many different ways we could take this conversation. I mean, the obvious is just to say... You know, imagine if Iran was flying around drones over Texas and over Florida, you know, and, th- and their excuse was, well, we're just making sure you guys in the U.S. aren't going to bomb us. And it's like, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't hear that for a second. But, you know, when we have drones flying around thousands of miles away and it gets shot down and the idea that we'd go to war over that, it's like it's just a drone. It's like, you know, if your phantom drone got shot down, it's like I'm going to go to war with Texas or something. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, how could this be the case that this is so crazy right now? Yeah, I mean, certainly I don't think the United States would like accept the argument like because the U.S. is trying to split hairs and say, oh, we were not over Iranian airspace. We were over <laughs> right. international waters, so, <laughs> right, right, even right. though they're 5,000 miles away from American airspace <laughs> yeah. where you know they ought to be. So I don't think the U.S. would accept that if there was Iranian drones flying around the, in the Gulf of Mexico or something, technically over international waters. Or so, uh, but yeah, I mean, flying your toy, your you know hundred million dollar toy over someone else's airspace and it gets shot down—that's an outrageous reason to to launch a war where tens of thousands of people are going to die. I mean, Iran is a far larger like Iran's bigger in every way. They're more mountainous, their economy's larger, they have a bigger military than Iraq, and so if we had such a hard time in Iraq. Uh, 
granted there was issues in Iraq about, you know, we didn't send enough soldiers to like fully, you know, accomplish the invasion. There was that issue, but I don't have any reason to suspect that that wouldn't happen in Iran too, that they would, you know, try to skimp out. You know, so, it, it seems like our leaders are pretty open about the fact that a lot of innocent people are going to die if you go to war. They're not hiding that at all. They're pretty much using that as the threat that, yeah, if you provoke a war with us, we're going to blow you guys the fuck up and, you know, say goodbye to your children, your grandchildren, you know, three generations of your family. They're pretty open about that, it seems. And I think that's just one of the most creepy parts. Yeah. And, you know, the thing, this is like something that I was actually happy about because uh, I think we we're talking about this off air. Uh, Donald Trump explaining how... Uh, you know, he had, had not given the orders yet and planes were not in the air. And his whole rationale for why he called this off was that people would have died. And he's saying it would have been like, I'm amazed that Donald Trump is like saying something that sounds akin to like just war theory or something. He's talking about proportionality. It's like, I'm, I'm impressed with that. And I'm really happy that that's the rationale he's taking. Now, well, in fact, let me jump in here and just say that. Okay. Yesterday, he, he basically said, I saved the lives of 150 people because I stopped the attack. I pull up a headline from BBC News today. The, the, uh, the headline says, Trump warns Iran of obliteration in events of war. <laughs> So on one hand, he saved 150 people. On the other hand, he's going to literally obliterate them if they <laughs> if they press our buttons anymore. I mean, it's just kind of what do you say to that? <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's all over the place. Like you know, I'm not saying that I, uh, you know I think he's really sincere and genuine when he says like he he didn't want to kill those 150 people. I'm just happy that's the the rationale he's even using. That's like the right. argument he's putting forward. Yeah, we'll you know? take it. We'll take it. Exactly. Well, I, I don't know if we can maybe just touch on like a few obscure events here because, I mean, I guess we're just kind of sitting around waiting to see if any anyone else gets triggered here. But I know um, there was the Iran-Contra deal because that, that may have some relation to the weapons being sold around today. There was the Iran-Contra. I don't know. Maybe you could touch on that, Will or Kyle. Yeah, Iran-Contra, I can't recall all the details off the top of my head. However, I do know that the, the main thing with Iran-Contra was there was a, a communist like takeover in Latin America and Nicaragua and the Reagan administration did not like that. And they wanted to back the, the Contras, the, the anti-communist forces there who ended up, I believe being basically like death squads who killed like you know, thousands of people. So you know, that's, that's our friends. And you know, that's who we always back is the, the death squads. But part of that whole arrangement involved, uh, you know, bu buying and selling weapons with Iran, trading weapons with Iran to, to get the money. So I, I forget all the, de maybe Kyle can, can go over that more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, like, like, well, I don't know all the details on that, but the important thing uh, that I, that to take away from that event was, you know, everybody kind of blames, oh, 1979 uh, is the reason that U.S. and uh, Iran can't get along. Well, in the 80s, we were selling them weapons, so that doesn't really make sense. Um, one thing I did just want to add about the whole Donald Trump's announcement and everything is I'm a little bit skeptical that it wasn't all political theater, that he felt like, and maybe this was even to appease the hawks in his administration, that he had to like make some kind of big threat against Iran. Um, I, I, I don't. I just. I, I'm not really convinced that he waited until a couple hours before the attack to ask how many people would die. I think how many people were stationed in the bases were probably key to picking targets. And so I, I feel like Donald Trump should have known that information earlier on. That being said, that we just may not understand like the whole narrative of events here, and that the U.S. like started preparing for the attack, even if you know six or eight hours or so before the attack, just because you know there's a lot of American assets that are near Iranian um, militants or Iranian-linked militias all over the Middle East. Um, when you look at Helmand, Afghanistan, 
uh, bases all over I Iraq are, you know, U.S. soldiers and then Shia militias. Of course, they're there fighting ISIS. Um, you know, the media always forgets that part of it, that they're on the same side fighting against ISIS in Iraq. Uh, that's still, you know, a problem from time to time. Uh, seven Shia were just killed at a, a basically a mosque in Baghdad uh, by the Islamic State. Well, I and guess we're gonna get, if we're going to give Trump any any benefit of the doubt, we can say that, okay, the president is the commander-in-chief of the whole military. So anything the military does is kind of going to come back to Trump. It may very well be that you have people like John Bolton and others in, uh, you know, behind the scenes, and they're basically one way or the other forcing Trump to carry out these orders. And, you know, what we see on the, on the news media is just, you know, Trump making an announcement. But who really knows what the hell goes on beyond, behind the scenes? That's why they call it behind the scenes. We don't know what's going on. Um, you know, I, one kind of racy thing I want to touch on is Flight 655. Any of you guys want to touch on that? I, I don't know that much about I don't know this. <laughs> that, was the, that was the Iran Flight, six, uh, Flight 655. They got shot down. Oh, the uh, airliner? Yes, yes. Uh, okay, I'm familiar. Like, okay, I, I'm familiar with that 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 happened. But yeah, I don't. I couldn't couldn't tell you much about that. So that was just one of the one of the things that like when, when all this happened, and people are like, oh yeah, remember Flight Six Fifty Five? You know, the thought of us going to war over a drone being shot down. It's like, well, we kind of shot down. I forget how many people died in that. Um, let me. You know, one, one really interesting thing about the coverage is that the drone that was shot down was a Global Hawk, which is a really advanced spy drone. Uh, as Will said, the price of this thing keeps going up too. Uh, it started at 100 million and now it's like 220 million. Uh, but anyways, it's really big, and so everybody keeps comparing it to an airliner because I guess it's like somewhat the same same shot size and shape and moves at the same speed. So I thought that was really interesting because I guess in one sense, and maybe it's like a fear mongering thing, like oh maybe Iran's going to start shooting down airliners, um, but. It just comparing that to like you know as you're saying as what happened with that flight where America shot down a, a Iranian passenger jet full of it was a uh, 274 people or 290 people died and and just kind of went and said oops and yeah. you know that would never be the same though if it happened uh, to the Iranians I think that would probably provoke a, a limited strike. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Pompeo was saying, I forget when he said this, but he definitely said that if, uh, if any Americans die in any of these Iranian provocative maneuvers or attacks or something, that will definitely justify uh, uh, an American strike. And so, yeah, I can only imagine with, like, what, 300 Americans were killed in, you know, one go by Iran. Yeah, and it's, not, it's not as if they're trying to fend off war. I mean, they're just looking for any little thing, any little thing to get the war they want, because I, I do think they want this war. And, and that's why I'm so concerned right now about the situation in Iraq and Syria, where uh, basically anybody fighting on behalf of Assad who isn't a Russian would probably be, if they killed an American, would probably be blamed uh, on on Iran um, in Syria. So that's dangerous, especially since there's a few hundred Americans at the Altanov base and a couple thousand still there helping out the Kurds. So there's all these... Uh, chances for conflict between the U.S. and Syrian, Shia, Iranian, Hezbollah forces in Syria, but more importantly in Iraq, where you have you know a bunch of crazy jihadists running around out in the desert there, and the U.S. Uh, along with the Iraqi army uh, that is backed by Shia militia is also there. And every article I see about any kind of mortar fire landing anywhere near the Americans talks about, oh, the tensions with Iran and how this could provoke a war with Iran. And at the very bottom, it says, like, 
oh, by the way, maybe this was ISIS. <laughs> it most definitely like, seems like Iran's been, a sca- Iran's been a scapegoat for everything. I, I just pulled up this one headline here from BBC News that says, Iran executes man on charges of spying for U.S. This, this just happened like an hour ago. So, you know, we're talking about how they're just looking for one little thing to get this war set off. I mean, you know, it could, could Iran executing... It says he was a former defense ministry employee for the U.S. So, um <sighs> I don't know. I, I, I'm just like, you know, refreshing the page, checking headlines, you know. It may very well be that by tonight, after this episode airs, you know, we were in war with Iran. And that's, it's terrible, guys. I mean, it's just, I think we're all so numb to this. We're talking about an imminent war, and it's just like, you know, we're kind of numb to it. We're kind of just sitting here like, yeah, it's probably going to happen. It might not. It's kind of creepy, though. I mean, I think if we were back in 2001, we'd have been freaking out right now talking about this. Like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe we're about to go to war right now. It's just, um, it's unbelievable. So, I don't know if you guys have anything else to add. I mean, I think it's just, you know, the talks, talks, uh, clock is ticking right now. We're just going to see what happens. Yeah, I, it is unfortunate that things have gotten to such a point where, like, it's so tense. It's such a, a tinderbox or whatever that any little thing, like you're saying, I, I'm going to look into that, that executed uh, the guy. I'm curious how, how that's going to be spun. Right. Uh, so yeah, it is unfortunate that just any little thing right now, a shoot down of a drone, a, a incident in, in you know international waters in, in uh, commercial shipping lanes or something, anything could yeah really spark this up, kick this thing off. And so definitely you know keep your eyes peeled on the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz and stuff. That's certainly where I think a lot of stuff would be popping off if it is going to well, happen. I think it's also sad that you know us sitting here in the U.S. like we got to check the news, you know, people in Iran and these Middle Eastern countries, they got to constantly check the sky to make sure planes are flying over if, 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 if a bomb's, you know, flying towards them. That's just, it, it, we can't, we can't imagine because we will probably never experience that in our lives. Well, maybe I could uh, try to throw some optimism on this at the end here. Um, I, I will say that it's important to remember that right now Iran is uh, the victim of a war, an economic war waged against it by the U.S. with the sanctions against it and the, you know, threatening to sanction anybody that does trade with Iran is going to be crippling to their economy and, and a real problem. And so if things happen in the Middle East and Iran, it seems to be acting aggressively, well, you know, maybe it is defensively, but in the U.S., uh, you know, we have Pelosi, who was apparently at that White House meeting advocating for anything to go through Congress. I saw, you know, Rand Paul, Chris Murphy, and all that kind of usual crowd of Mike Lee, Bernie Sanders saying that anything about Iran would have to go through. But even Tim Kaine, who was Hillary Clinton's running mate, saying that it is bizarre that the uh, U.S. is trying to uh, attach or uh, link al-Qaeda and Iran and that the U.S., they can't use the 2001 AUMF to attack Iran. And so there, there is a push to, you know, this would have to get congressional authorization. And who knows, maybe we could get a resolution passed that says absolutely no war without congressional approval against Iran. That that may be huge uh, to, to prevent anything from happening here. And I even see more and more of the more mainstream leftists, or not leftists, because those are the people that are good, but the, the mainstream like left, you know, kind of the people who suck most of the time, Chris Hayes. The liberals. Yeah. You know, I saw Chris Hayes say like, hey, this whole Iran thing seems an awful lot like Iraq. And if that's like the, the kind of narrative that people start to believe, I don't think this war will, ha- will happen just like the 2013 against Assad didn't happen. Uh, yeah. It would be really stupid if it did. And hopefully, you know, Donald Trump sees the same situation that was facing Obama then. And he'll say, oh, well, I guess I got to give approval to Congress. And there's no way Congress is going to go along with it. 
Yeah. Let's just hope Tucker Carlson stays anti-war in Iran. You know, as long yeah, as Tucker that Carlson for, for all his bullshit lately, he's he's always been good on war. I think he was always against the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. You know, what one last question I have for you guys, if either of you know. Um, say tonight we attacked Iran. Where would we be attacking? Would we would be attacking their nuclear facilities? Would we be attacking their big cities? I mean, you know, what kind of death toll are we? Are we expecting to see if we go to war with Iran? If you have any idea at all, because I know they have, I know they have like 81 million people, and I doubt we're going to hit the whole country. But that's just scary. I'll I'll let Kyle answer a little more. But I believe the the uh, strikes that were planned the other night were on like ballist, uh, on missile sites. I think that was what they said. But maybe Kyle can give more detail there. What happens if you blow up n- nuclear missiles? That's I've never. Thought no, about not, that. not uh not nuclear missiles. They don't. They actually oh. have Iran has no no nuclear missiles, but just uh like ballistic missile sites and stuff. What if you blow those up though? Do those like is that like a double explosion? I, <laughs> I think I think yeah. If you blow up like a missile stockpile, I think it does like create a gigantic thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah like there's been weapons warehouses that have been hit in Syria that have like sh- you know caused earthquake like style like you know shaking of the ground and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see, these you know things could be really dangerous and explode. And you know everybody thinks of the precision strike that's just going to destroy the Iranian weapons. Well. You know, if it causes a whole bunch of secondary explosions that could kill a lot of innocent people. Uh, my my guess would be is that the first strikes would have to be against the Iranian air defense systems. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, all their other missile sites would come first. I don't think the nuclear facilities would be a target at all because Iran isn't making a nuclear bomb. They had nowhere near enough m- nuclear material to make a bomb. They don't have the right reactors. And even then, they don't have missiles that could carry a nuclear bomb. They, you know, haven't tested a nuclear weapon. It's not just like you get a whole bunch of nuclear material, you shove it somewhere and put a firecracker at the end of it, right. and it goes off and get a, a nuclear warhead. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely insane to think that, uh, you know, the, the U.S. would need to target any of their nuclear facilities right now. Unless, of course, like it was a, a strike against like wherever they have some centrifuges because, oh, they're violating the nuclear deal. But like I, I would think they would have to take out air defense first, and I had to think that they took out air defense, they would assume that Iran would retaliate, and so then they would have to take out all their other missile sites because there's seventy thousand U.S. troops within range of uh, Iranian missiles, and who knows how many uh, okay. that, that it's up to whenever you start to include contractors, State Department, embassy officials, and of course Israel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like. They may be on the receiving end of a missile barrage from Hezbollah if the U.S. goes ahead and attacks Iran. What's going to happen between Saudi Arabia and Yemen when that happens? I mean, it's it's really explosive right now. And the the first attack will probably not be the last. And whoever attacks first will probably not, you know, predict the consequences of it. Well, okay. So one last question then. who is supporting Iran? Who are Iran's friends? Who who's backing them, and who's on our side? You know, uh, who are kind of the sides? If you had to sum it up, and just uh, leave it, we'll leave it there with, uh, with Will. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I know Iran definitely. I, I don't know if they have like any major like international sponsors. I mean, they had they're okay. they're they're allies with the Russians, but I think there's some tension between them. I don't think they're like real close, you know, best friends. Uh, Iran sold a lot of oil to China. I'm not sure exactly otherwise geopolitically how connected they are to China. Uh, Iran is very good allies with their next door neighbor Iraq. <laughs> I know that they tr- they maintain some relations with them, but um, but yeah, in terms of like international sponsors and stuff, and who's like you know. Uh, uh, 
propping them up or something. I'm not actually sure. I think they're mostly, they are sort of independent. That would seem like it'd be less um, incentive for them to <laughs> go to war if they don't have any friends. Well, this has been a fun episode, guys. I don't know if you guys would add anything else. Um, I do want to ask you all real quick. Um, tell us a little bit about your Russia Today job that you got because I, I remember when you posted on Facebook, you're like, hey, I, I might get this new job and everybody's like, is it Russia Today? Is it Russia Today? And you're like, I can't say, I can't say. So that's really exciting news for you, man. I'm glad to hear that. So tell us, tell us a little about that. Yeah, sure. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. It's uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a staff writer at, at RT now, um, which kind of means I don't really get bylines like my name's not appearing on my stuff, but I'm, I'm working with like the web team to produce the news of the site, which I think is kind of cool. Like we're, you know, and you'll get, you'll probably work your way up. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I definitely look forward to trying to work my way up a little bit, but I know, I know Ben Swan's on Russia today a lot. I like that guy a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of great people on there. Like I, I, I'm still sometimes discovering like, oh wow, like I didn't know that this was like a colleague of mine, this guy that I admire, and like I yeah. didn't know he worked for worked with yeah. me basically. But uh, but yeah, if you want to find like my actual stuff at RT, you can find it on my Twitter page. I, I tweet okay. out like I don't have a byline on a lot of my pieces, but you can see I'm tweeting my stuff out there at uh, at WKP ANCAP ANCAP. Well, that's awesome. So I'm going to link to Will's Twitter. I'm going to link to libertarianinstitute.org where you can find Will and Kyle as well as Scott Horton and other greats. I'm going to link to Foreign Policy Focus. So I'm going to link to anything else, guys, because I think this will pretty much be like a part one episode because we don't really know if we're going to go to war with Iran. Uh, might wake up tomorrow and we'll be in war. So we'll call us part one for this episode. So anything else you guys want to link to or call it? Yeah, no, I, I just want to claim credit for... Uh tricking Vladimir Putin into paying Will Porter to write our you know, <laughs> research and basically yes. getting the Russians to sponsor ANCAPs and then coming <laughs> on my show every week to talk about all the cool things he's writing about. So. <laughs> it's a big conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just got to tell one funny story real quick as you wrap up. Um, I, I heard Joe Rogan tell the story. There was some NFL player that went and met Vladimir Putin and Putin was like, can I try on your, because he had like an NFL Super Bowl ring, and, and Putin's like, can I try on it your ring? It was Robert Kraft, it was the Patriots owner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so Putin puts on the ring, and starts to walk away with it, and the guy's just like, well, hold on, man, that's my ring, let me get it back. And these KGB guys were just like, nah, man, we got your ring, it's done. We got your ring, and they walked, and they walked off, so Putin fucking stole this guy's Super, this guy's super Bowl ring. That's some hood oh, shit, dude. That is some hood hilarious. shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, guys. Let's do this again soon. And uh, have a good rest of your summer, everybody. For peace and liberty.